Lord, we just thank you right now for the word of God. We thank you that it's inspired, that it's breathed out of God. And thank you, Lord, that it's a living word that is quick and powerful, sharper than a sword. Thank you, Lord, that it's an edifying word, a faith-building word, a vision-planting word. And, Lord, I pray that tonight you'll illuminate us, the Holy Spirit, the great teacher of the church, the anointing of the Spirit of God would be with me as I teach and with the congregation as they listen. And, Lord, let us just feast on on the meat of the word, and we thank you for it. Now, I want you to pray, church, and say, Lord, build my faith tonight. Enhance my vision. Let me catch a glimpse of the next level for my spiritual life. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you look good tonight in church. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, I I tell you, summer is hanging on for all it's worth. Amen? But we're about to be in September, thank God for that. And, uh, you know, that back-to-school smash is going to be powerful. A lot of people are going to be reached. They've been having a lot of teenagers saved upstairs. So that's a blessing. Amen? Now, uh, we're going to go through the last half of 1 Peter chapter 3 tonight. And I'm telling you, I'm going where angels fear to tread with some of this. This is going to be meat. T-bone, steak, all right, the meat of the word. Now, last time we ended with chapter 3, 11 to 12, which instructed us how to enjoy life and see good days. How many of you want to enjoy your life? You know, some people hate their life. They hate their life. They wake up and they go, Lord, I wish it was nighttime and I was going to sleep. And they go to sleep and go, oh, I wish it was morning and I didn't have to go through the bad dreams and all of that. It's a blessing to enjoy life. And you enjoy it best with Jesus Christ. Amen? And then he said, if you want to see good days. So Peter's given us advice about enjoying life, seeing good days. Now this time we're going to finish chapter 3 with a look at the question of suffering. Anybody in here suffered yet this year in any way, shape, or form? Here's a better question. If you have not suffered some way yet this year, raise your hand. There, see, everybody suffers. If you had raised your hand, I was going to call you down and let you lay hands on me. I want what you've got, right? But we all suffer, and some of us suffer, it seems, worse than others. Some of us deal with chronic diseases that we've been told there's no cure for, and God hasn't healed us heretofore. Uh, some of us suffer for a variety of reasons, and in different ways. We suffer mentally, we suffer physically, we suffer spiritually. A lot of times we suffer with a broken heart. Suffering is a part of life. Can I just tell you the truth about life? It's hard. It's hard. You need all the grace that you can get. I need amazing grace every day. Amen? Now, in verse 13, Peter talks about walking in such a way that others will not harm us. He says in verse 13, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, what he's stating here is a general principle, that if you live a good and a godly life, 
a good life and you're not around offending people or doing crazy, stupid things, people tend to leave you alone. So this is just a general rule because the exception is persecution where it is exactly because you are a Christ follower that some people want to harm you. Amen. And I'm quoting Paul here in 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall. Does it say might? No, it says shall suffer persecution. So the general principle, who's, who's going to harm you if you're followers of what is good? Now next, he tells us that when we suffer, he said, let me tell you how to suffer right. Let it be for the right reason, with the right reaction, and with the right resolve. Okay? So let's look at the verse. Verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Now that's the right reason. You're suffering, but it's for a, a good reason. You haven't gone and done something sinful. You haven't done something wrong. You haven't brought it on yourself. But because you're living righteously... You're suffering. Now remember, Peter is writing 1 and 2 Peter to a church that is under Nero's persecution. They are suffering big time. They don't know with any given day if they're going to live through it, whether or not they're going to be arrested, whether their house is going to be invaded by Roman soldiers. Nero has lied about the church. He has let the church be the scapegoat for the fire that he was the cause of that burned through Rome, or rather Jerusalem, he, he is blaming the church. And so they have been persecuted. They have even been held up as torches to light Nero's garden. They're suffering. And the persecution is spreading all throughout the Roman Empire. So that's why Peter keeps talking about suffering, because these folks are suffering. So he says, if you should, should suffer... For righteousness' sake, the right reason. Now here's the right reaction. Happy are ye. Happy are ye. Now I'm going to tell you, it takes the Holy Spirit within us to be joyful in the midst of suffering. Amen? But he says that's the right reaction. And sometimes, folks, you just have to put it on. You have to say, you know what, I'm suffering. But I'm going to praise God in the middle of my suffering. I'm just going to praise God. And that's the right reaction. Happy are you. And then he says, and don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. That's the right resolve. No matter what I go through, I am not going to walk in a spirit of fear. No matter what I go through, I am not going to walk in a spirit of intimidation. No matter what I go through, I resolve to not be afraid of the threats of the ungodly, nor allow myself to lose my peace. So there you got the, the right reason for righteousness' sake. You've got the right reaction, I put on the joy of the Lord. And you've got the right resolve, I will not lose my peace. Amen? And sometimes that's the decision, folks. You know, the Bible says, put on Jesus. It says, put on love. It says, put on mercy. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's just like putting on a coat. Uh, uh, have you ever been in a situation where you just said out loud, it was a trying situation, you're suffering. Have you ever just said out loud, I choose right now to put on Jesus. I say it, I put on Jesus. I put on his love. I put on patience. I put on peace. I'm dressing myself by faith in the fruit of the Spirit. 
Sometimes I don't feel patient. Every once in a while, I really get impatient. The only thing I don't like about patience is waiting. That's a joke, son. Just want to see if you're there. But there's times I just say, you know what? I put it on. I have a choice. I can react in the flesh or respond in the spirit. So I'm just going to put on Jesus in this situation. You got that one person in your life that drives you crazy. They're a gift from God. Because they are sharpening you. <laughs> they, are, they are sharpening you. And they're teaching you to go, you know what? I put on patience. I put on the love of God. If I don't put it on, I'm going to kill you. No. So sometimes, listen, it's by faith we put on the fruit of the Spirit. So everybody say, put it on. In the same way, you're supposed to put off the old man. You're supposed to put off the flesh. Put off those old habits. So in the same way you would put a coat on, you would take that coat off. So by faith, we put some things off, and by faith, we put some things on. Now, this is the same Simon Peter who denied Jesus after his arrest. He's been totally transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. In the book of Acts, we find him going to sleep. The night before, they intended to execute him. He went to sleep. An angel had to hit him to wake him up. Terror and dread that Peter experienced before a young girl in the garden around that little fire where Jesus was being held. A little girl saying, you were with him, scared him so badly, he denied Jesus Christ with curses. But now, Simon Peter has put off fear, put off intimidation. He has put on Jesus terror and dread have now been replaced with rejoicing. He knows he will soon be crucified, just as Jesus had told him years before, yet courage has replaced cowardice. Folks, sometimes it's really a matter of just putting it on. Amen? Now, he continues with instructions on how to face suffering. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, the first part of this verse, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, is a quote from Isaiah the prophet. And it means we are to suffer with the Lord enthroned in our hearts. And not only the Lord enthroned in our hearts, but with the word of God enthroned in our minds. In the midst of suffering, we say, Jesus... You are Lord. You're Lord of my life. You're Lord. And you know what, Lord? Not only are you Lord and you're enthroned as number one in my life, but I'm also ready to give a defense to anyone who says to me, why are you willing to suffer this way for Jesus? What's up with this? I mean, why are you, why are you willing to go so far with your Christianity that people are rejecting you and ostracizing you or maybe making fun of you or ridiculing you or you're the brunt of the joke at, at the office uh, lunchroom. And, and, and so they, they, they want to know, why are you willing to do this? And he says, always be ready to give a reason, to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Well, I'm so glad you asked me that question because let me tell you why. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. 
I was bound. I was chained. I was in torment. I was going straight to a devil's hell. I had no hope and no future. And Jesus Christ came into my life. And it was not rehabilitation. And it was not a New Year's resolution. And it was not turning over a new leaf. When I said Jesus helped me and come into my heart, he came in and I experienced a deep inner transformation so that I'm no longer the same man, no longer the same woman. I have been transformed. That's why I'm willing. Now, again, even as Peter was writing, Christians at Rome were facing horrible deaths. Many of them had suffered the loss of everything. Others had been tortured, others martyred. Many of them had seen their loved ones, as I said, used as human torches to light up Nero's garden. Can you imagine that? Come on. You talk about trauma. But this is what they went through. And so Peter says, you put on Jesus, you put on courage, you put on faith. You put on patience, you put on love, and you resolve, I will not be intimidated, nor will I be afraid of flesh, but I will walk in courage. All they needed, now if they had wanted to get out of the persecution they were in in those days, all they needed to do was offer a pinch of salt on some pagan altar as a sign of renouncing their faith, and they would have walked free. Or if they had just said, okay, all right, I renounce Christianity, I renounce Jesus, The door would have been open and they would have walked free. But you know what? They refused to do that. We have records of it. Uh, We have records all through history of Christians who refused to renounce Jesus by the scores. And in the end, their refusal and courage in the face of death took the pagan world by storm. Because the pagan world looking at them said, it has to be true. There has to be something to this. Because why would they be willing to go through this, it doesn't make sense unless what they're saying is true. The blood of the early martyrs became the seed of the church. I don't know if we'll ever face that or not in our lifetime here in America. I don't know. I know that there are Christians all over the world who right now are losing their lives this way. They're, They're being looked at by Muslims, or I read last week of a, a, a person who was killed by a, a bunch of Buddhists for naming Christ. And people all over the world, we're protected here. All over the world, they're giving their life. And, they're, and, and their spirits are going into glory now. And they're saying to Jesus, how long before you avenge us? And he's saying, just a little longer, hang on. Amen. Folks, it's later than we think. It's later than we think. It's later than you think. It's later in your life than you think. Peter continues with how to face suffering. He's really on this suffering thing. In verse 16, he says, having a good conscience. That that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, I've talked about this many times, but again, let me say, a clear conscience was and is essential to a Christian witness. It was the very thing that the Apostle Paul confessed to having when he was brought before the Sanhedrin. He said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. You don't know it, but a lot of times when I'm standing over here before I get up to preach, and I know I'm going to be preaching to many people 
And I want God to move, and I want people to be saved, and, and I want to see the Spirit of God touch the service. I'll, I'll stand there, and I'll say, God, forgive me. I'll, I'll, I'll repent of any little thing I can think of. Because I don't want anything blocking the anointing of God. So I'll say, Lord, forgive me, forgive me for any thought any idle word, any action, any wrong attitude that has grieved the Spirit of God in my life. Amen. Forgive me, Lord, because I want to preach with power. You can't do that with a defiled conscience. You can't witness with a defiled conscience. It takes your authority away. All right? So Peter says, when our conscience is clear, just as believers... Our persecutors have no weapon against us. He said, when they defame you as evildoers, they're going to end up being ashamed because there's nothing to it. It's not true. And things have a funny way of rising to the top. You know, people can say bad things about you, but if you notice that people who say bad things about you, their words become like boomerangs. Have you noticed that? And they go out there for a while, and it looks like they're going to hit you, but all of a sudden that thing turns around and comes back and hits them. He that digs a pit for you to fall in ends up falling in that pit themselves. <clears throat> With all the times the Apostle Paul was taken to court, he knew they had nothing on him. And this made him bold as a lion. I want you to know a clear conscience equates into boldness. Now, how many of you want to be bold in the Lord? Bold, I mean bold as a lion. Then a clear conscience has got to be there. So, you know what? We can't do anything about the sins of our youth. I wish I could. I wish we all could. We all wish we could. But we can't. We can't go back in time. But we can seek to keep a clear conscience now. Keep short accounts with God. Amen? If you mess up, fess up fast. Never let the sun go down on anything between you and God. Get it right immediately. The quicker you repent, the better off you'll be. Now, verse 17, he says, For it is better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. God's will, he says, if it is the will of God, God's will allows us to suffer for the cause of Christ. If it is, if your suffering is in the will of God, that tells me that some suffering is in the will of God, especially when you're suffering for the cause of Christ. Now, why would it ever be God's will? that we suffer for Christ. Why doesn't he protect us from everything? Because he doesn't want us getting flabby, spiritually fat, and lazy. Now let's recall what Peter wrote in the very first chapter when he talked about suffering and God's will. He says, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though the going is rough for a while down here. These trials, the trials you're going through, church, are only to test your faith to see whether or not it is strong and pure. It is being tested as fire tests gold and purifies it. And your faith is far more precious to God than mere gold. So if your faith remains strong after being tried in the test tube of fiery trials, it'll bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day of his return. So catch what he says now. When we pass through suffering for the right reason, with the right reaction, and with the right resolve, Peter says our faith is purified. 
Now, I learned a long time ago, Satan is not out, folks, to make something go bump in the night in your house or to give you a flat tire or to give you a headache. That is not what the devil's after. You want to know what he's after? Let me tell you what he's after. He's after your faith. Now, listen, why is he after your faith? He's after your faith. He wants you to doubt God. He wants you to doubt the goodness of God. He wants you to doubt God's intentions towards you. He wants you to question God. Where you finally decide like Eve did, that God is not out for your good. Remember, he attacked the character of God to Eve. He said, has God said, and don't you know, Eve, that God's real intent for not letting you eat of that tree is he doesn't want you to be wise like him. He's holding back from you, Eve. He doesn't want the very best and highest for you. He's cheating you, Eve. And it says she looked at the tree. She longed for the tree, and then she picked and ate of the tree. The only way she ever did it was she began to doubt the character and goodness of God toward her. Now, that's what the enemy's after. Because right here we're told, your faith is more precious to God than gold. Your faith. So when you get attacked, when you're really under a satanic attack, you can know it when, when your faith is under attack. And your faith is under attack when you're sitting there wondering, well, where's God? Why hadn't he come through for me? Why hadn't he provided for me? Maybe he's not hearing my prayer. Maybe he's not everything I've been hearing about in church. Maybe he's really not what I thought he was. Maybe I need to quit wasting so much of my time and energy and effort in seeking him and going to church and praying and all this Christian stuff. If you start going through that, then you can know your faith is under attack by the devil. He wants your faith. Because if he can derail your faith, you're out of the race. And you're not going to count. Your life is not going to influence others for Jesus Christ. He's got you where he wants you. So when we pass through suffering for the right reason, with the right reaction, with the right resolve, Lord, I trust you. I read old Job this week. Old Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And he lost everything except his life and his wife. And he'd have been better off losing her too for a while there. Because she was telling him to curse God and die. He was probably thinking, you took everything else, why not? I'm sorry. But she was not helping his, his battle. She was not entering into his battle with him. I'm sorry, I just kind of threw that out. I'll probably get mail on that one. <laughs> Not to mention his three friends that did him no good at all. Wow. Now, next Peter turns again to Jesus as an example of suffering. He says, you want to know how to suffer? Let's look at Jesus. Jesus' suffering eclipsed all other suffering. Do you know that, church? Nobody suffered like Jesus. The Bible says that he was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. Our Lord's life was marked by suffering. Peter says that first, Jesus' suffering on the cross was redemptive. Nobody suffered like Jesus on that cross. Nobody. Nobody. Because on that cross, his suffering was redemptive. And that means it was a vicarious atonement. A vicarious atonement. 
Look at chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered, how many times, everybody? Once. He doesn't need to do it again. Once for all, he suffered. The just, him, for the unjust, us. That he might bring us to God. How many of you are thankful that on that cross, he suffered, he, the just one, Suffer for us, the unjust ones, that he might take the unjust ones back into the presence of the just one. Amen? Then Peter points to his victorious attainment. He says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, the vicarious atonement accomplished for us by Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross is the greatest reason for his suffering. Listen, he could have opted out. Jesus could have any time. We know that because he told us. Remember when he said, don't you know I could call on God? I could call on the Father, and he would send 12 legions of angels, and they would whisk me out of here. So Jesus could have opted out at any time and gone back home to heaven. But he didn't. He had come into this world with the sole purpose of dying for our sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring the unjust to God. So tonight we fellowship with the Heavenly Father through Jesus, the Holy Ghost. If you're born again here tonight, most of us here are, hopefully all of us are, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. You have been brought into the presence of the just one, and you were unjust. But the just one died for the unjust, so the unjust could have their hand, and he could take God's hand and put our hands together. So now we fellowship with the Father through the just one, Jesus Christ. Vicarious atonement. He took our place. The plan involved an exchange. Christ would take our place. And we would take his place. Wow, that's a deal. All of our guilt and sin and suffering and shame were transferred to him when he was on the cross. He took Jeff's sin. He took Valerie's sin. He took Jesse's sin. He took your sin. He took the whole world's sin. On to himself, the vicarious atonement... He became guilty of our sin, judged for our sin, and he died for our sin. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every time you've cussed, every time you've broken one of the commandments, every time you've done something dark, every time you've gone wrong, that was all placed on Jesus. And God looked at Jesus and said, guilty. Then, all of his holiness, righteousness, goodness, and acceptance were transferred to us. And he said, righteous. That just gave me a Holy Ghost bump. Amen? Come on, everybody. He looked at Jesus and said, guilty. And he looks at us and says, righteous. Now, that's the best trade I know anything about. Amen? He died so that we can live. And the ground zero of the exchange that took place was on a cross on a skull-shaped hill named Golgotha. That's where the divine exchange happened. And now it doesn't do you any good unless you put your faith in him. He died for the sins of the whole world. But only when you put your faith in him does it become real for you. 
You've got to go to the cross yourself. And when you do, your sin is forgiven and washed away. And God looks at you and says, righteous, 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 justified, just as if you never did it. But although Christ was put to death in the flesh, as Peter says, he was also quickened by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit made his body come to life. You know, the Holy Spirit was active in every part of Jesus' life. The Holy Spirit conceived him. I want you to say that with me. He was conceived with the Holy Ghost. There are whole denominations now that don't teach that anymore. God help them because they're in heresy. Because listen, there is no Christianity if he was not conceived of the Holy Spirit. He does not have an earthly father. He had an earthly mother, but he has the heavenly father. So that he did not take on Adam's sin. So he had a heavenly father. The Holy Ghost moved across Mary. And that holy, the the Bible says that holy thing conceived in her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. He's spirit conceived. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything in Jesus' life, the Holy Spirit was involved. Thank God he went all the way to the cross to die for you and me, and he rose from the dead that we might one day too arise at his return. I'm looking forward to the resurrection day. Amen? Can we just take a minute and just thank Jesus for what he's done for us? I sense... Just a holy moment on us right now. Uh, just, let's, just, let's just say, Lord, thank you for coming willingly to this earth by the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't opt out, but you went all the way to the cross and took my sin on you. Thank you, Lord, for giving me your righteousness. And thank you, you're coming for me again. And I will be resurrected in Jesus' name. Give him a hand of praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, we're coming next to one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Matter of fact, I'm really debating in my own mind whether or not this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament. Chapter 3, verse 19. Here's what Peter writes. By whom? Now, let's remember, this is following verse 18, where he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So the whom is the Holy Spirit. So by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, everybody put on your thinking caps with me. Now, he's talking about when Jesus died. Now, what did he say when he died? He said, it is finished. When it was finished... He also had said, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit, didn't he? Now, so by whom? By the Holy Spirit, after Jesus had given up the ghost, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, what in the world was that talking about? Peter is telling us that the Lord Jesus, upon his death, went to the underworld to make a proclamation. I'm going to explain all this to you. We're told in the next verse who the spirits were that he addressed. Verse 20, who formerly, talking about the spirits now, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, 
in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. That means through floating on top of the water. The water didn't save them. They were saved floating on the ark above the water. Now, let's unpack this. First, let's do some word study. The word went. It says, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. The word went there is used for a person going on a journey. Jesus' journey was a long journey all the way to the underworld. I'm going to tell you what the underworld was, so hang tough with me. Then he says he preached. That's from the Greek word meaning to proclaim. He did not go to the underworld to preach the gospel. Or the word for evangelize would have been used. And it's not used. The word to proclaim is the one that's used. So just keep that in mind. He didn't go down to the underworld to preach the gospel because nobody down there can be saved. It's too late. Baby. It's too late. Once you die, it's too late. You're not coming back as anything else. You'll never have another chance to be saved in this life. Now, it says he preached to spirits. That's the Greek word pneuma. And this word is never used in the New Testament to refer to human beings. The context demands that the spirits Jesus addressed in the underworld were the fallen angels of the antediluvian age. Now, what do I mean by antediluvian? That is the time before the great flood of Noah. If you had lived before the great flood of Noah, you were an antediluvian. The people, let's just play with it a minute. The people who lived during Noah's time were antediluvians. If you lived in that age, it was the antediluvian age, the time before the great flood of Noah. Now, notice what he says about these spirits. He said they're in prison. This word literally means a cage. Now, let me break down the Bible for you in a way that maybe you've never heard. There's four Greek words for the underworld in the New Testament. The first one is Gehenna. Everybody say Gehenna. Gehenna. That's a Greek word. Now, Gehenna was a deep, narrow valley that really did exist to the south of Jerusalem. But it had a bad, bad history. Because this is where idolatrous Jews who were working, uh, worshiping Moloch and other false gods, Baal, but mainly Moloch, they were worshiping idols and they would offer their children alive in sacrifice to Molech in fire. It's terrible. But let me tell you something about when you kill your own children, like America does. When you kill your own children as a nation and it's sanctioned and it's okay, then that is one of the great signs of a nation that has become debased and separated from God. Because it's not natural to kill your own offspring. And and so whether you were bowing down to to, to Molech and offering your child on fire or whether you're, you're bowing down to your own convenience and allowing somebody to take your child because the child's inconvenient, it's an idol. When a nation says it's fine, and they make it law that it's fine, that nation has so departed from God, it is so unnatural. I'm not condemning. If you're here tonight and you've had an abortion, I love you. 
I would never point a finger at you and condemn you ever. God loves you. And I'm not saying these things to make you feel badly. I'm just telling you that you read history, Bible history, secular history. And when a nation walked away from God, nine times out of ten, they also started killing their own young. The Romans did it. These, those women would have their children, and they would take that child out to a meadow at night in the freezing cold and just lay him down and leave him there and go back home and leave that child to the animals and to the cold. That's what the Romans did. And I could go through history and tell you more. I know it's, it's, it's difficult to hear, but I'm just telling you. Now, Gehenna afterwards became the common receptacle. It was, a, it was a place that burned all the time. And it became a common receptacle for all the refuse of the city. Sort of like a burning uh, garbage dump. The dead bodies of animals and of criminals were taken there and thrown into the fire. All kinds of filth were th- was thrown into the fire. Uh, cast in and consumed by the fire that was always kept burning. Now, over time, Gehenna became the image of the place of everlasting destruction. And Jesus used Gehenna as a metaphor for the place of everlasting destruction. He repeatedly, if if you were to read the Greek language, when Jesus talked about hell, he would use the word Gehenna in this sense, as a place of eternal punishment of the wicked, generally in connection with the final judgment. So that's the first place in the underworld. Jesus used Gehenna. It means the place of everlasting destruction. Now, the second word is Hades. That's the second, second word for the underworld, Hades. In the Old Testament, Hebrew, it's called Sheol. Amen. Jesus taught that Hades consisted of two different spheres divided by an impassable gulf. Remember when he gave that little teaching on the rich man that died and then his servant that also died? His servant's name was Lazarus, and Lazarus went into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man went into a place of torment. All right? That's where we get this. Jesus was teaching on the reality of Hades. Now, he said it consists of two parts or two spheres. One side was a place of torment where the rich man said, give me a drink, put something on my tongue because I'm tormented in this place. And then he, what did he do? He begged Jesus or God, he begged God to let him go back to his life so he could warn his brothers to avoid that place. Hell turned him into a witness. Only problem is it was too late. But the other part of Hades was called paradise or Abraham's bosom. It was a place of rest and comfort. Now, church, watch this. The Lord himself, when he died, he went to Hades at the time of his death and emptied out the paradise section. Come on, everybody. He emptied it out. Now, who was in there? Every righteous person who died in faith. We read all about this in Hebrews. These all died in faith, Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be, could not be made perfect. In other words, they were waiting on the new covenant, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and so Abraham was in there, Isaac was in there, Jacob was in there, Isaiah was in there, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, every righteous man and woman, Sarah was in there. They were all, all the righteous who died in faith, 
believing for the day Jesus would come, were in paradise. And when Jesus died, he went into Hades, the good part, and said, let's go. And he took them out. And we read about this when Paul said he took captivity captive. So Abraham said, woohoo, about time. I talked about you. Moses was in there. Aaron was in there. David was in there. Solomon was in there. And they all came out. Remember when the Bible says in Matthew that after the resurrection of Jesus, a bunch of Old Testament saints came out of their graves and were walking around Jerusalem? That's because paradise, Abraham's bosom, was emptied out. But now the bad part, the tormenting part is still there and it's full. Got a lot of people in it. And it's awaiting the great white throne judgment. Because remember it says in Revelation, it says, when the great white throne judgment happens, it says, death and Hades spew out the dead that are in them. And they go and they face God and they answer for their sins. So Hades is full of departed souls who were lost. But the paradise part is an empty place. Because now if you're a saint, if you're a Christian and you die in Jesus, you don't go to Hades. You go straight into the presence of the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Amen. Amen. Now a third word for the underworld is the abyss. Also called the bottomless pit. We recall how the demons begged Jesus, please don't send us into the abyss, into the bottomless pit. And Jesus said, okay, you can go get into the pigs. And they rushed into the sea and they were drowned. Remember? They were terrified of the abyss. Whatever it is, it is an endless, bottomless pit. It's part of the underworld. The fourth word for the underworld is where I'm going now. That's going to take us back to Peter. Is Tartarus. It's found only, that word in the Greek language is found only in 2 Peter 2, 4. Tartarus is the prison where fallen angels are held awaiting the final judgment. Now let me talk to you about those fallen angels. The fallen angels Peter refers to are also spoken about by Jude. Verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. Very important. Watch that. They did not keep where they, stay where they were supposed to. They didn't keep the, the abode God had given them. But they broke out of the boundaries God had placed them in. And Jude says he has reserved those angels in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. When are they going to be judged? At the great white throne judgment. It's called the great day, the day of God. Now, who are these fallen angels that are down there in Tartarus right now as we speak? They're in Tartarus right now. They're in a place in the underworld right now called Tartarus. Who are they? And how are they unique amongst all the other fallen angels who fell when Satan first rebelled against God? Here's the answer. Those angels, the angels in Tartarus, have fallen twice. Notice how Jude says they did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. Now both Jude and Peter are pointing back to the days of Noah, the antediluvian days, when Satan hatched a plot that was so sinister, so diabolical, and so designed to stop the appearance of Christ on this earth. He tried 
to totally destroy the human race and thwart the coming of Christ. Now let me show you how he tried it. Let's read what Moses tells us about the antediluvian days. Genesis 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass, says Moses, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Okay, the human race is multiplying after the creation. Daughters are born to them. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit's not always going to strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. What he's saying there is, I'm giving man 120 years from right now to repent. And if they don't repent within 120 years, they're going to, be, they're going to perish in the flood. Now look at verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God, there's those sons of God again, came in to the daughters of men, they bore children to them. And who were those children? What were those children? The giants. They were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. But that's not saying they were good. It's just saying they were known. Actually, these giants were violent, and they were godless. Verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. I can't believe this next part. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not one time on earth did one human being think once, except Noah and his family, one righteous thought. Every thought was wicked. Every thought was evil. Only evil. Now, who are these giants? Who are the sons of God? The giants Moses mentions here were the hybrid offspring of fallen angels who, Jude told us, left their proper domain and they crossbred with human women. Now, you say, come on, Jeff. I'm feeling like I'm watching Outer Limits here. Let me tell you, I don't know if this happened in spirit form or if it was demonized men. I don't know. But I do know, based on the teaching of the Bible, that these giants were the result of intermingling between fallen angels and earthly women. Hence, these demons had fallen twice. They fell the first time when they went with Satan, when he took a third of the angels and rebelled against God. A third of the angels followed him. There they fell once, but now they have fallen twice. They left the domain and the boundaries that God gave them as fallen spirits. They left that and broke out of that. And Jude says they went after strange flesh. Or, and, and that's from a Greek word meaning another flesh. A flesh that they were not of. Something they were not of. They went after strange flesh. You can read Jude 6. You can read 1 Peter. Read it yourself. Their co-mingling with human women imperiled the whole human race. 
by crossbreeding the human with the superhuman. Now, say, well, why would the devil do that? Because it was Satan's attempt to stop Christ. And it almost succeeded. You know how I know that? Because it says Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives were the only savable people on the planet. Everybody else had been corrupted. I told you this is going to be meaty. Some of you were looking at me like, I don't know about this. Man. I'm just kind of. I want you to just to read it yourself. I, you know. By the time the ark I put sailed, but it didn't sail, it floated. But by the time the ark floated on the water, only Noah and his family were saved. The rest of the earth had become polluted and corrupted with this satanic attack that was designed to ruin the human race and stop the appearance of Christ to redeem man. It was a diabolical thing. In wiping out all human beings in the flood, except Noah, because I used to read, gosh, Lord, you, you killed everything, everybody. That's heavy stuff. But you know what? In doing it, he saved the human race from this diabolical attack. Because Satan schemed to corrupt all human beings with this demonic crossbreeding was way, way down the road. Happening. It was advanced. The Bible says only eight souls were saved, showing the only, that only Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives were free from the universal corruption. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his sons. So Jesus, so get this now. So when Jesus died, he went to Tartarus also. And proclaimed his victory to these spirits that had tried to ruin his appearance. Come on. Yeah. He went to Tartarus where they are right now chained until the judgment of the great day. And he said, you tried to stop me. You almost did it. But you were thwarted. And you lost. And you failed. And I just want to let you know, my body's about to get up from the dead. And I'm about to be resurrected. So you failed, devil. Sort of a na-na-na-na-na-na. The chapter closes out with a word on water baptism. And then we're done. There's a, there is also an antitype which now saves us. That is water baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh... Because water baptism doesn't take your sin away, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Peter is simply saying, the ark was a type of water baptism in this way. Just as the ark was the only place of salvation and deliverance from judgment, so our identification with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection likewise saves us. Let's stand, can we? Everybody say, heavy tonight. You say, well, Jeff, what if the devil tries that again? He can't. They're all locked up in Tartarus. They are. They're locked up. They're in prison. That's the verbiage that the Bible uses. They're in prison in Tartarus, chained.
Amen. Let's thank Jesus. Lord, we just come into your presence and we bless you. We thank you. We magnify you.